My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. pray for all the native nations who dwell upon this land. I pray they dwell within the hoop and circle of unity and harmony. May their ways be straight and their paths be true. May their days and nights be blessed. May their children grow in light and love, and may their power hold strong. This is a prayer from the Anasazi Book of Song. Today's guest is Dr. Erica Elliott, school teacher and doctor who spent time in the high desert among the Navajo people. She spent time on a Navajo reservation, becoming immersed in the mystical world of Navajo life. She had a series of profound experiences with the people, animals, and spirits of Canyon de Shelley that changed her life forever. And here to discuss all that and more, right here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, is Dr. Erica Elliott with me, Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. They don't say peyote, they call it the medicine. I guess I was affected. So I went and I started praying in Navajo. And there's two conversations going on in my head. One said, Oh, oh my God, you're 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 praying in Navajo. That's impossible. You you must be really stoned on this peyote. And the other voice said, this is really happening. This is more real than real. No, it can't. You're stoned. This is, you're imagining this. This isn't happening. So then I finish the prayer and pass it on. And then the next thing is the water drum where it's a, a metal container with water in it with a deer hide stretched over. So it gives the most ethereal mystical sound and so they take it and drum and then they chant and sing 
And so the same thing, Shema did that. And then she said, just pass it on. <laughs> and I didn't pass it on. And I started going, hey, me, young, I, yo, way, hey, yo, way, hey. And I, I had the same voice, man, you are really stoned. No, I'm not. This is really happening. No, it can't. You've never heard these songs before. This isn't real. And so I passed it on. <laughs> wow. And then since the other weird things happened before the end of the evening, uh, or the, yeah, the night, I actually had a real hallucination on my hand. I, uh, my real hallucination was that I had a wedding band on. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm married, but I don't even know who I'm married to. And that was just a thought. I never said anything. And everybody burst out laughing. I, and they were all looking at me. And I was so shocked. Dr. Okay. Erica Elliott, we have you here on the show, and it's a it's an honor, it's a pleasure, it's a synchronistic occasion because we actually heard about your book on another podcast that reviews books, and it stuck with us. We both, Tara and I, both really liked listening to the retelling of of you know your story through this podcast, and then a few months go by. And I get an email and, you know, I see a few names in the email and you popped up. And, and then as I'm looking over this book, I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? Well, it's because this podcast had covered your book. So this is a sort of synchronistic occasion. But w before I go and spill all the beans, please, Dr. Eric Elliott, it's a pleasure to have you here. Can you please introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. I'm Eric Elliott. I'm a medical doctor. I practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico. My patients come from all over the country. I specialize in diagnosing problems that other doctors either don't know how to diagnose, don't even consider, misdiagnose, or just call the patient a hypochondriac. And so I, I love being a medical detective. I came into that naturally. It's sort of my nature to want to figure out why people feel bad instead of just give them pills. I, I don't like the way my profession <laughs> operates, just sort of treating symptoms. I don't care for that at all. I really want to see the patient heal on all levels and not just cover up symptoms and because then that's not real healing. And so I, I love what I do. It combines nutritional medicine, environmental medicine, meaning all toxic exposures and what you eat, what you breathe, mold exposures, Lyme disease, all things that most doctors don't have a clue about. And it also is talks about addresses spiritual issues that gets in the way of healing or, or is lacking in, in the healing process. So I love what I do. And, and I, my patients ask me if I'm going, when I'm going to retire. And I say, you know, this is my spiritual path. This is my life work. 
I don't have any intention of retiring. And my dream is to practice until I fall over dead. <laughs> wow. What an inspiration. I love it. And I, I think more, we need more folks like yourself because there's, there's been such a lopsided approach to healing, specifically in the past hundred or so years, and it's caused so many problems. And I think it all starts with the mental issue of, you know, wrong thinking and wrong relationship, not only with our environment, but with ourselves. You know, we, we've, there's this disconnect, there's this, you know, materialistic approach to healing of, oh, well, you know, this is broken, so I need to see this guy to fix it because he's a specialist and, you know, and it, we really need to really gain a more holistic insights into this thing that is our human body, this amazingly complex. I, I know. I, I'm going to tell you a fact Hit us. that is so shocking, but it's the truth. You can look it up yourself. Out of the 37 richest countries in the world, we're at the bottom of health, meaning we have the worst health of 37 rich countries, and we're at the top for cost of health care. That, that's pretty sad. That's a sad statement. Something's extremely wrong mm. with our whole healthcare system and our whole agricultural system and the food industry system, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, to regain our health, we'd have to have a massive overhaul. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think so many people see or maybe intuitively feel this problem that needs to be solved but the mechanism by which they go about to to find the solution is inherently flawed or even worse you know paranoid thinking here maybe they they've been manipulated into a route that's geared towards money and and really not understand what's really at foot here and like you said at, or at the beginning a solution based you know, approach rather than this, just fighting the symptoms, you know, fighting back the symptoms and creating, right. you know, more problems in the, in the long run, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think the the big industries that we're dependent on, they don't always have our best interest in mind. Right. Well, it seems like you endeavored to, to go out and, and, become a doctor, but something in the seventies kind of got in the way first, you know, you had this sort of, everything was lined up and then you sort of took a left turn that ended up being really more a part of your path than, than maybe you'd initially expected, yeah. huh? So here, here's what I'm going to say, Mark. I come from three generations of doctors in Switzerland. I'm, I'm half Swiss and it's in my DNA to be a doctor. But I never considered being a doctor in the early days because my only role model, Mark, was my uncle in Switzerland. And he was utterly brilliant. He was like 50 years ahead of his time. I, I was just in awe. And I'd interview his patients that came from all over Europe and Russia and the Vatican and all, all sorts of people from street sweepers to royalty came to him and they were all quote hopeless cases and they all got healed. And so I, this was my only role model. And I thought, you know, I, I, 
his patient said, when are you going to come back and work with him? I said, well, he's a genius. I'm not a genius like that. So I never thought that I was capable of that. So, so I, I, I did this big, big journey looking for my life purpose, spending 10 years. And then I went all the way around to the beginning. And I discovered that when I took a few science courses as an older person, because I tested out of all my science requirements at Antioch College, it was very progressive. And so when I wanted to go back and learn these stuff that I tested out of, Everybody in the class at the University of Colorado in Boulder, it was advanced placement biology. Every single person in the class, except for me, was pre-med. And I thought, these are our future doctors? I had no experience with doctors, like I say, except for my uncle. So I thought, they are not geniuses. <laughs> and so I thought, I, I can do this. They're not even that smart. I mean, they don't ask questions. They don't do critical thinking. They just memorize and say it back. Well, I know how to memorize. <laughs> I, in England, when I went to school there, we had to memorize long poems. So I knew how to memorize. <laughs> but to me, that that didn't show signs of being a genius at all because you can memorize. And so here's the thing. you Some people might say, oh, you wasted 10 years. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Those 10 years were so important because it made me realize what's important in life. Now, my classmates, they went straight from high school, college, being doctors. They were missing out on real life, and they treated their professors like they were God. They never questioned anything their professors said and saying, is this really true? It's not our experience, you know. And when they told us saturated fats are bad for you and cause heart disease, I grew up in Europe. They ate tons of saturated fat, eggs and cream and butter and had way less heart disease than we did in America. So I thought, Some, something's not right here. But nobody questioned except for me. And pretty soon I had to learn to shut up mm -hmm. because you're not supposed to question the narrative and you get in trouble. And so... So anyway, those 10 years I learned, like with the Navajos, I learned that I love teaching, but, but it's not just any teaching. It's, it's teaching something that empowers the person. And to this day as a doctor, I do a lot of teaching. I don't believe in just saying, do what I say, because I'm a doctor. I, I hate that approach. My whole approach is empowering the patients, just like I empowered those students, giving him information that was useful, that that they could use and feel like good about themselves. And then I also learned, being with the Navajos, that whatever I chose to do in life, whatever, like teaching or whatever, it not only had to empower people, but it had to be given with love. And that's what transformed the classroom with those Navajo kids. It wasn't just some teacher up there saying, you know, do this and write this and this. They knew that I loved them. And I'm not embarrassed to say I loved them. People don't say that very much except romantic love. I so loved them and they knew it. 
And it was so transformative. They wanted so badly for me to learn English because they cared about me and wanted me to know about their lives. They wanted to tell me all about their lives. And so they learned English so fast. It's unbelievable because when I went there, they were in the fourth grade. They couldn't speak English. And I said to the teacher aide, how can they be in the fourth grade and not not speak English? And she said, well, it, it, it's complicated. First of all, they're away a lot because they have to help their family because a new baby came and they have to help herd the sheep. These are boarding school kids. They live from very remote areas, very traditional Navajos. And they're not used to white people back then, these kids. And the teachers didn't give a damn about them. And the, when I first arrived, they told me all these bad things about the children, like they can't learn and they're Mm. It was awfully so, insulting. And and let's go back to you know the time period. This is the seventies. You're you're pulling up in a, a sort of a hippie <laughs> bus into this kind of like country western vibe of a place. You know everybody's wearing cowboy hats and and you're absolutely right. These kids, you know they they were just waiting for somebody to give them positive, constructive attention. And it seems like all they had been getting were, you know, people who didn't understand them, nor did they care to understand them. And they didn't like them. These Mm. teachers were waiting to get their pension and go back to Alabama or wherever they were from. Mm. And, uh, and, And so they they really looked at it like sort of almost like a prison sentence. You know, they got their paycheck and they're waiting to retire and stuff. And they thought that I was crazy because I was so excited about participating in Navajo life and everything. They they couldn't fathom what I found so interesting. <laughs> so I was this big enigma to, to the teachers, except the principal was a black man. He really got me. He didn't like me at first because he thought I was a hippie. I said, no, you've got to get rid of that idea. I am not a hippie. I'm just different. And I, I did, I, I don't, I'm not, haven't gotten a paycheck yet. So I don't have really nice clothes, but I will as soon as I get my paycheck and don't judge me from this van with a peace sign on it, because that's all I could afford. I I had to borrow money from my sister. And so Anyway, after he got over his serious doubts about me, we became very close friends, and he he allowed me to develop my own curriculum because one of the reasons that my teacher aides said the kids weren't learning anything is they couldn't relate to these stories about, you know, Dick and and Jane, (laughs) that wasn't their reality at all. And so I started spontaneously making our own curriculum, thinking that I was going to get in trouble. And but the the principal let me let me do whatever I wanted. I couldn't believe I was getting away with taking them on field trips just here and there. And then they come back and they write about it. And, And then he took it one step more. He he not only let me get away with it. He called Washington, D.C., the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and he said, we have this white teacher here who's speaking Navajo with her kids and teaching them about their own culture. And he said, you know, maybe she should be part of the pilot program, which is a very new concept then in the U.S., 
of bilingual bicultural education. It was brand new, introduced, I think, by Bobby Kennedy. I was there in 1971, two and three. And so it was very novel. And so I, I was selected to be part of the pilot program and the BBC came and filmed the classroom and everything. But anyway, back to my purpose in life. So I knew that whatever I ultimately did, I, I just from the Navajo experience, I knew it had to be um, teaching, empowering, and delivered with love and care about the other person and not coming across as some kind of dictator that tells them they have to do this and that and so on, and I'm the boss and stuff. And so so each thing that I did on those 10 years helped me enormously be a better doctor. Right. I, I mean, a much, much better doctor because I had these real life experiences and it honed me into what exactly is important to me in, in this life? I want to live life in a meaningful way. I mean, this is, I only have one life and I want it. And now is so meaningful. I, I, I just love what I do. And I, again, people don't talk like this, but I love my patients. I do. I do. And so it's not work to me. It's such a pleasure seeing them get well and saying, wow, I've been to 15 doctors. I spent my life savings and now I feel better than I ever have in my whole life. Do, do you know what that is? That that That's like so rewarding to me. I can't tell you. Does that make sense, Mark? Oh, it makes it makes so much sense. And I, I really wish that you were in proximity to my grandparents because they could use a doctor like you. But, you know, it's it's really worth noting the point you're making about love. It, it It's so important. I think it's it's totally undervalued. Our culture has so few words for the concept and and it's rarely, you know, a comfortable subject outside of maybe romantic, you know, love. Right. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. And, and on that note, a lot of doctors seem to be acting out of fear, right? Uh, they, they're the in opposite times, of love. They, they were all, all the time and because they get in trouble. But now it has gone wildly out of proportion. Doctors are so scared now of losing their license that they, 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 they say things that are really important. They can't say things that are terribly important and perhaps life-saving to the patient. Can you imagine if you're a caring human being and you watch things happen and you can't speak up? Can you imagine that cognitive dissonance that you have to live with? That's enough to make you have a heart attack or give you cancer or something because you're, you can't follow your truth and you can't say things that might save your patients because it's going against the common narrative mm. so that that's a horrible situation doctors have been in you know doctors come i don't care how smart or stupid they are doctors come wanting to help people and wanting to make a difference and most of them are smart and and then when they work for corporate medicine they, they can't be their full complete self they have to follow the rules they have to see people in 15 minutes or something when they have this huge problem. I mean, so it's not the doctor's fault that medicine is so bad right now. It's the system. 
the system sort of makes them practice bad medicine. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I have been researching this. Tara and I have been looking into this in our local area. We're in Connecticut. And what we've found is, you know, the New England history, it was sort of like a melting pot in the sense that you have these surgeons from the Western world sort of blending their practice with the shamans and the folk healers of different countries that came over and obviously the native, you know, indigenous healers that were already present. There was like this blending that went on in the 16th, 17th centuries, even the 18th century. And it started to wane as, you know, the industrial revolution began to commercialize and export a lot of these things. But it, it feels like what you were in touch with as we were reading this book, you know, uh, with the Hopi medicine man, the Navajo medicine man, they're different, you know, the wisdom, the, the, the practical wisdom that they had has been totally lost on the system that we're talking about here at large. You know, in, in individual cases, you have, you know, bright doctors like yourself who are able to practice, you know, and... And they're sort of like a, you know, a light in a sea of, of sort of dimness, you know, and, and yeah, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation. Tara and I have been sort of trying to understand where it all started. And it seems like New England, you know, we're, we're best known for the witch trials, but there was a lot of, you know, folk healing that was going on here. And that was very much a part of the whole witch saga. I know. I can give you a bit of history. And then... I'll just give you a bit and then you can research it on your own because otherwise it takes up too much of our program. But Rockefeller that was the oil baron, right? And he, in the early 1900s, he discovered oil and he made a fortune, but he had to find other uses for his oil besides just for driving cars. And so he, he was very smart very smart man, but didn't always use it for the greater good. So kind of jumping, jumping over all the details, he, he got in league with the pharmaceutical industry to make drugs out of some of these of the oils. A lot of things we use are petroleum-based. And so he was, that was one way to use his oil is to make petroleum-based pharmaceutical drugs. And no one was really interested in that because they were doing folk medicine and homeopathy back then. And so he managed, you, you again, fill in the details yourself because it's too time consuming, but he managed to form the AMA. Some, is it right? Yeah. The, the whole, the whole new way of practicing medicine, drug based. Right. And, and then they managed somehow to, outlaw homeopathy and plant-based and vilify it and just slam it and get people in trouble who practice that way. And pretty soon, it wasn't long. He, he was so brilliant at manipulating his the reality to, according to that benefits him. And pretty soon, everybody followed mainstream medicine and pe less and less people they, they called it quackery, witchcraft, all that stuff, right. and and it's really sad because it because the the pharmaceutical industry, you know, has some good things about it. You know, they have insulin and thyroid hormone and all those stuff that are really important. 
and uh, but too too many drugs are harming people. They're actually harming people, and and the whole population is so oriented this way. And but there is a movement among people your age and others that are going back to a more natural way to get well. Right, right, and you know there's a part in the book where you sort of had a, a medical scare and, you know, you're like, I don't want to deal with these hospitals. I don't want to deal with the doctor. And I feel the same way a couple years ago, uh, almost a decade ago now, I broke my wrist skateboarding. And, uh, you know, after the procedure and all that to get my bones set correctly, they were like, well, what, you know, what's the pain level like? Are you a uh, five, uh, eight, you know? And I'm like, stop right there. I don't need it. You know, save it yeah, for the next guy. You Oxycontin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They, they pushed it. They pushed it right. really hard. Right. So I'm, I'm well aware and I'm glad to hear that that's a trend amongst, you know, our, our generation. Yeah. But, you know, back in, in the time that you were teaching these children in the early 70s, I mean, it was probably unheard of for somebody to go towards, you know, a more holistic option, right? There wasn't a lot of interest oh, yeah. in that in my, back then. And my, my friends, everybody thought I'd lost my mind. Well, first of all, they thought I lost my mind that I was going to the middle of nowhere, meaning the Southwest, and and going to a remote reservation and teaching on a boarding school they said don't you know what happens in boarding school they the kids are abused and everything and i had this feeling this school would be different somehow i don't it was all intuition it was all intuition and then i'll tell you something mark my experiences were so far from white people or non-native people let's say reality that I did two things. One, I kept a meticulous diary. That's why writing the book was so easy for me. I'm, I'm really busy, but I managed to pull it off in the evenings. But it was already sort of written in my diary. And, and the reason why I documented everything is because I thought this is so unusual, so inexplicable, some of these things that if I don't write it down, I'm not even going to believe myself. If as the years pass, I'll think, wow, did I imagine that? Did I dream that? So I knew that was going to happen. So I wrote everything down and documented everything. And then, <clears throat> and then it dawned on me because I started talking to people about these experiences. I realized they thought I was making it up and and I I was young at that time and that that really hurt my feelings to be not believed. I I don't know, I was insecure or something. It really hurt my feelings when they thought I had a good imagination and made the whole thing up. So I my sisters begged me to publish the book. They said this would be a great book, a children's book or something. I said, "Nope. No, people aren't going to believe this ever happened." And then I sort of matured and I got to the point where I didn't care if people believed it or not. I My job was to tell the truth, what I experienced. But by that time, I was already in medicine and medicine is so time consuming. It just sucks. You, you know, I, I, I mean, I had to let go of a lot of things, taking care of my garden and house maintenance and stuff, because this this was my highest priority. And so... But then it, for the elections of 2016, I said to myself, okay, 
you have to write this story and publish it because this is a healing story for our divisive times. This is a story about crossing the cultural divide. It, this is a in the 2016, everybody was fighting each other against each other, divisive and stuff. And I, I said, okay, you, you, you have to do this book, not for yourself, but as, as a healing story, as a healing story, you have to do it as a public service. And so that's why I wrote it. Wow. And I'm glad it reached us. I love it. I, I think it's exactly what you described a healing story and you know there go ahead feel that it was a a message that receiving through spirit for more of that I, I think you're i think you're right i think i think that's what really happened to tell you the truth that yeah yeah cuz yeah it seems like the, the with the the oral traditions and the the medicine and sharing the stories and sharing your stories and us sharing stories it seems like that's that's kind of the the medicine of the indigenous that should be coming through well with yeah, the storytelling in fact i sort of learned i mean i i really i got my storytelling skills honed from all the storytellers i was with they tell stories in the evenings. They tell stories, and that's how they pass on wisdom, and they educate younger people through stories. Mm. Right, and it seems like it was not a an easy task to assimilate to this new surrounding. I mean, the kids they weren't making eye contact at first. They were spitting tobacco on the ground and into little wads of paper and. You know, I mean, some of these these little anecdotes that you left us with are are hilarious, but also really insightful, you know. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting was the fact that these kids all had, you know, I think it was the Skinwalker experience, right? And we'll hopefully get into that. But they all understood, like when you talked about it, they all could relate, right? They all had similar experiences, maybe not of a skinwalker, but paranormal experiences. And I wonder, you know, if, if living that close to the earth, you know, not having a floor even in, in some of their homes, you know, like it, it makes for a different consciousness, you know? Yeah, they're always touching the earth. They have, they're, they're hogans, their homes had no floors, they were dirt. And so they were always connected, you know, and they were, right. they were barefoot in their homes often, not, not always, but so they were really in, literally in contact with the earth, literally. Right. And even the, the little boarding school that you were in was, you know, you could still hear like, you know, the horse whinnying outside and yeah. things like that. Like yeah. you guys were still kind of out there and obviously taking the kids out on the field trips and stuff was yeah. probably fun for them, you know, not being cooped up in a box all day. A absolutely. They loved it. They wow. loved it. So yeah. what, what were some of the more memorable moments there? Because there had to be, I think the... One that really stood out to me was the 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 mistranslation. You really freaked the kid out. <laughs> can you, really you tell us? Can you air? tell us about okay, that? Is it is it all right if I say yeah. something nasty on here? Oh please, yeah, we're fine here. This is a podcast. We don't get censored. Go for okay. it. Okay. 
So here, here's what happened. I when when the kids were responding to me, I I was going to quit because I, I thought I I'm wasting my time. They don't even talk. I misinterpreted what they were doing. They were looking down and not talking to me. I totally misinterpreted. I interpreted they didn't like me. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? And so, I mean, that just shows you the. The, the two cultures, you know, they're so foreign to each other. And so, and so I, I felt this is hopeless, you know, I'm getting nowhere. So I told my father I was going to go home and I made a big mistake. And he said, no, you, you've only been there a week. You can't, you can't judge a person, a place, their land and their culture in a week. Why don't you do this? Why don't you stay there three months and then if you're still unhappy, you, you go back. And I, oh, three months. <laughs> okay. And so, but I thank God my father said that because the very next day, the, the teacher aide, Donna Scott, who, who was very aware of both cultures because she had lived on an army base. And so she spoke fluent English and she was totally traditional Navajo at the same time. That's unusual. And her father was very famous, Carl Gorman. He was one of the major code talkers in World War II. And the code talkers, they didn't speak a code. They spoke Navajo. And that tells you how hard it is because it was the only code in World War II that was never broken and it wasn't a code. And so that gives you an idea of what I was facing trying to learn Navajo. Anyway, so Donna Scott, and her brother, by the way, is a super famous painter out here. R.C. Gorman is now dead. But so she was very shy and respectful, like a traditional Navajo. But she, she came forward after not saying much the whole time. Not She said, I see how hard you're trying. I see you really want to connect with the students. And I see that you're different from the other teachers, and I want to help you. I said, oh, yeah, please. She said, first of all, I want to explain to you what happened during this past week. And and because I don't think you understand what was going on with the students. She said, first of all, most of them don't speak English. Hey, that's the first thing. So that's one reason they didn't talk to you. Number two is they're extremely shy. They're not used to white people. Number three, they're also showing respect to you by not looking right into your face. That's considered totally disrespectful, and it's it's considered aggressive, un unless the person's your friend. You know, eventually they looked right at me, of course, but then I was unknown to them. And so I said, really? Jeez, you mean that they don't dislike me? She had nothing to do with that. that that's... And so that has nothing to do with it. So, oh, my God. And she said, plus, they know the white teachers don't really like them. They, they're aware of that. And that, that influences, makes their shyness even more. And I, I said, well, what should I do? And she said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you about our people. And, and the first thing is I'm going to teach you a few words of Navajo because that will make everything change. So she taught me how to say like three sentences. Good morning, my children. My name is Miss Elliot. 
what's your name and where are you from? And oh my God, the sounds were impossible. There were sounds that don't exist in English. They don't exist at all. So how how would I even write down what she was saying? Because how do you say, how, how do I write that? And so I asked her to say those sentences over and over and over again. And then I, I went home and stayed up late into the night, looked in the mirror and got, <laughs> and so then I, I walked into the classroom the next morning. Of course, no one was looking at me. They, they looked down. <laughs> and I said, probably in terrible demo, probably it sounded like gibberish. I said, And everybody looked up at the same time in total shock and then one girl went (laughs) and then everybody burst out laughing and that was the moment when everything changed everything changed wow wow yeah to to be a fly on the wall then when they erupted in laughter that must have been so reassuring you know in that moment full of joy i could say i could barely contain myself oh my god i struck gold oh my god i'm on the right path oh my god and then i gotta tell you how that day ended there was one boy in this in the classroom who was very bold and, and, and these kids were so shy but this kid was not shy i don't know how why he was different or how he became different but he wasn't shy and he spoke he spoke a little English. Maybe that's why he wasn't so shy. And he walked up to me and he said in really kind of staccato English, that's when they're just learning English, it's very staccato. And he said, and he couldn't say Elliot, that was too hard. So he said, Elliot, like E-L-T. Elliot. And they, they talk like they're angry. They're not angry, it's their language. So what I'm going to say sounds like he's mad. He's not mad. It's just the Navajo way to talk he said and take me home I said, what he said take me home I-, I looked at donna scott and i said donna wh- what does he mean and she said he wants you to check him out of the boarding school and i looked at billy you want me to check you out of the boarding school he says oh that means yes in navo oh and then i said you mean this weekend? Oh, you mean pick you up and check you out and drive you into the canyon? Is way far away into the canyon to your parents? Oh, and, and and then and then stay there with you? Oh, and then take you back? Oh, and so that's what I did, and that began a whole tradition every weekend. I took a different student to their home and the f- family spoke no English at all. So I, I, I started really learning Navajo, but okay, now we're going to go back to Mark's question. <laughs> and so, and so I, okay. About the Navajo language, it's very tonal like Chinese. So in English, for example, a, you have two ways to say it, a and ah. <laughs> in Navajo, there's maybe 10 ways to say it. And they all mean something different. So I made a lot of mistakes, but this one was deadly mistake I made. And 
So, so one day, this little boy, I saw he was having a lot of trouble with writing and English and stuff. And so I wanted to help him after school. But there, there's this almost, I'm going to say a non-politically correct word. There's almost this oriental, you know, from their ancient roots of being really deferential and shy and, you know, and so, so anyway, I, I didn't want to embarrass him in front of the other students by singling him out. That's the worst thing you can do is it, for a traditional Navajo is single them out. They're, that's not like a modern Navajo, but in those days, you never pointed. That was like, <laughs> that was like cursing them or something. So, so anyway, so I waited till everybody gone. I said, you know, I, I tried to get him to come so I could offer help. And so I wanted to say something endearing. And how you show friendship in Navajo is you use a kinship term because families and clans are of supreme importance. More important than anything is their family and their clan. So you you show kindness and caring about somebody by saying my brother or my relative or my uncle, even though you're not related at all. And sometimes for humor, they, they love to laugh. And that's another stereotype that white people have about Navajos in that era that they don't like to laugh or show emotion. That's not true. It's just they don't like to do that in front of white people. But anyway, and so let's see. <laughs> so I I wanted to say, come here, my relative. And the word for come come here is hako, hako. And shit means to me or my. And <laughs> and I said, hako shike. I come here, my relative. And he went, oh, and he ran out of the room. And Donna Scott said, what did you, what happened? What did you say to him? I said, don't ever say that. I said, what did I say? She said, I'm too embarrassed to tell you. Please tell me, please, Donna, tell me what I said. And with great embarrassment, she said, come, you said, come here and fuck me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. That boy, that boy never looked at me again. He oh, always no. sat at the back of the class. He was scared to death of me. Oh, did you ever get a chance to clear it up? <laughs> yeah, I, I took Donna to talk to him and I, I said, I'm sorry. Yonitsago means I'm very, very sorry. And Donna explained to him, but he still was frightened of me. Mm. Yeah, that and that was such a an interesting point of the story for me kind of shocked me, but it also like highlighted how that tonal language, you know, like yeah. one word can be so yeah. similar, but so different from so, another. So Here, see if you, you can hear the difference between the three different meanings. I mean, three different words. Okay. So, Okay, I'm not going to say again what I said to him because there might be some Navos listening to this. And, well, I guess I will. So I'm going to say hakoshike, which means come here, my shoe. Shike means my shoe. Koshike means come here, my relative. Hakoshike is what I said. 
that I shouldn't have said. I bet you can't hear the difference, can you? The first one and the second one were a little different, but the second one and the third one were pretty much the same to my ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, so, so, I, I, so for a while I stopped speaking Navajo because I was so not wanting, but that didn't last very long mm. because they, they draw me in and pretty yeah. soon I just, and, and if I made serious mistakes, nobody told me. Well, and and there was a an event. I hope we didn't, you know, fast forward too much because there was something that felt like ultimately was like a, a divine or a higher order symbol of like, well, you're clearly meant to do this. And this was your encounter with what I'll say is your spirit guide, right? That's the yeah. name of the chapter. That's spirit guide. But would yeah, you mind right. telling us a little bit no, about that? I'll, I'll tell you about that story. Okay, I'm a nature girl. I I just love being in wild places where nobody goes. And I I'm pretty at that age, I was pretty fearless of animals. I was more afraid of people like being raped or something. And so I going deep into the wilderness where nobody was, I, I had no fear at all. And maybe I should have. But anyway, so and also I was so far off any road on in my four-wheel drive i trade in the hippie van for a four-wheel drive because you have to have a four-wheel drive there or you're you can't go anywhere and so i was in southern utah far far the main road was 40 miles away so if my car had broken down i would have died of dehydration or something because nobody went there and but i i wasn't you know when you're young you don't think about those things. Is that true, Mark? I mean, were you at that phase one time in your life? <laughs> yeah, last summer, Tara and I yeah. did a little trip like that up north. We, you know, we're in Connecticut. So for us, we went to New Hampshire and Maine. And yeah, we probably underpacked a little bit, yeah. overpacked oh. the wrong supplies and underpacked the ones we needed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, I didn't really acknowledge what, what the, huge potential risk I was taking. And so anyway, I, I, I got to this gorgeous area with these beautiful rock formations, red sandstone. I mean, it's just like so gorgeous. And by the way, on, on the path in to deep into these rock formations, a coyote ran across my path. And I, I thought, oh, that means something to the Navajos. I, I, I can't remember what it meant. And then I remembered it means something bad's going to happen to you. And I thought, oh, and then I thought, no, I'm, I'm a Bilagana. I'm a white person. So this doesn't apply to me because this is their culture. And the, the coyote does, is not a symbol that I'm going to be harmed. <laughs> so anyway, that wasn't true. So anyway, so. <laughs> Makes you feel a little safer, though, huh? At the time, oh, that doesn't apply to me. These skinwalkers and stuff like that. If if you don't believe in them, they they won't hurt you. And so, so anyway, so I parked my car, my four wheel drive, and I there. There's this gorgeous natural cistern. It's gorgeous, like pool of water. So I I I'm such a nature girl. I I just stripped off all my clothes and. I felt totally secure. Like I said, I'm more afraid of people than animals in, in that era. And so 
And I, I sat in the cistern and just gave thanks and felt so joyful and looked at the sky. And then it started getting, the sun goes down, it started to get a little chilly. And so I <clears throat> dried off and I, I walked along the sandstone barefoot because the rocks were very warm. And, and I got set up with my sleeping bag and pad right on the beautiful sandstone. And it was like a full moon coming up. And I was so electrified by the moon. And I just sat up and I sang songs to the moon. I was so happy. I was so happy. And, and then it was time to go to sleep and i had the this very weird dream i dreamt that i was in the corral with billy begay the nabo boy family and we were trying to catch the billy goat because it wasn't mating time and they wanted to separate the billy goat till it was a proper time to mate so Anyway, so, and when it's, when the billy goat wants to mate, they give off this very acrid odor. It's called pheromones. And it's so strong. It's sort of slightly unpleasant. It's so powerful. It, it's like smelling a chemical. And, and I thought, wow, this, this is so, this dream is so vivid. I mean, I, it's, it's almost like I, I can smell it in real life. And then I realized I was awake. And right when I realized I was awake, I, I, heard, I heard sniffing. And I opened my eyes, and right here in the moonlight was the face of the mountain lion, his tawny face and his whiskers, he was sniffing me. <laughs> I was paralyzed with fear, which saved my life, probably. I, I, I was so frightened that I barely breathed, I didn't move, and my heart was going like this, and I kept my eyes closed until way after the sun came up. I, that's how freaked out I was. And so I opened my eyes, and of course, he was long gone for hours. And there was no tracks because it was on sandstone. And then I, I, I thought, oh, my God, that, that really happened. And then I, I start stuffing my sleeping bag. And when I stuffed my sleeping bag, out wafted that pheromone. It was a male mountain lion. And that's wow. what I thought I was dreaming. It was yeah. the male standing over me. And having a scent, I hope he wasn't attracted to me because that's what they do when they mate. They have that strong smell. Yeah. Oh my God! Can you imagine it? <laughs> but the re and so I, I was obsessed about mountain lions from then, and I, I talked to everybody, biologists, rangers, all sorts, hunters, all sorts of people, and they all said the same thing. They said the reason why they didn't, he didn't rip you apart, eat you is because you didn't move. They don't like things that don't move. If you had fought him, you, you, you'd be dead as a doornail. He'd rip you apart. And so I had this funny feeling 
that there was more to this than that because I, I would dream about the mountain lions. I thought about them all the time. And finally, I told one of the teacher aides about the story. And she said, you should come with me to my grandmother in the, in the canyon and she'll tell you what this means. It means something. And so I went in there and I, 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 <clears throat> she spoke very fast. So, so the, the, her granddaughter interpreted for me, it was too fast for me to understand. And I, I wrote it in my diary, what she said <laughs> to this day, it, it has influenced me. And she said, the mountain lion is your spirit guide. And he came to you to give you his strength courage and perseverance because you are going to face some very life-threatening challenges and they might take your life and if they don't take your life you will have powerful medicine to bring to the people and guess what that all came true i had two really bad experiences that it's too complicated to go into here that almost took my life one was a snowboarding accident. A snowboarder hit me and smashed, and caused brain damage and smashed me up. And that's why my eyes look funny. And and I, I barely made it and had to have brain surgery and stuff. And and it made me a better doctor. All, all those disasters made me have even more compassion. I can go really deep with a patient who's suffering and look it in the face. Most doctors can't stand to do that. And then I crawl out and throw them a rope and help them out because I know what it's like to to suffer terribly. And so anyway, it all came true what she said. And that was in 1971. That was decades later that I had those life-threatening challenges. Wow. Wow. Dr. Erica Elliott, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I... I can feel it. I can feel it in your words. There's clearly power. And, and that speaks to what it really takes to be a doctor. And we see that in these plant healing ceremonies where the, the shaman or medicine man or the road man, as they're called in the, in the Navajo community, goes with the patient through the experience. Maybe they don't take as deep of a, a dose in all cases, but they're with you through the whole experience. That's really true. That's really true. And that's how they help you. They go to those dark places with you, and then they help you out, right. out of it. It's right. really and, true. And, and, you know, for me, it just rings true to the statement you made at the beginning of we're in this together, we need to heal each other, you know. And, and I think that, that part has been lost in the, in the medical community in the sense that a lot of people are, are so afraid that they're now thinking for themselves and, and doing what's best for them, not realizing they're maybe being irresponsible with their role. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there, there was a, a part of the book that goes into your experience sitting with peyote, and I found it fascinating to learn, and I've heard this in other places, but I was skeptical about it, that peyote's only been used for less than 200 years, or at least in the, the way it is now. It's That's exactly right. I'll tell you, this very heart-wrenching uh, history is it was first used, well, the first knowledge we have of it being used in, in North America was with the Lakota 
And they used it in the 1800s when they were getting massacred, whole families getting decimated and they're burned alive, shot. And it, it was just horrible. And so it was a way they got a hold of this and they must have had somebody go down to Texas or some other tribe harvest it where it grows in Texas and come and, and just trade and trade. And that's how I guess Lakotas got it. I don't know because Lakotas are up north and it grows down south. And so there must have been a lot of trading going on. But anyway, so that's the first we know of it being used for healing. And it was a way for them to deal with their profound grief, profound grief at being just wiped out. Wow. Yeah, the, the ghost dances were a big part of that. And yeah, it, it seems like somebody had to know something about peyote. Maybe it was kept a secret from maybe the people who didn't live in proximity to it. And, and out of, you know, need and necessity, they shared it with their brothers, you know, up north. Yeah, that's, I, I bet that's what happened. But I'm not sure. But it sounds very credible. Well, a lot of this stuff seems to be kept very close to the chest. You know, I, they're very fearful of losing the not just the the significance, but losing track of these stories, right? So it's not common for maybe the true history to be, even be shared with an anthropologist or somebody who's coming to document That's this. Absolutely stuff. right. In fact, back in that era, fifty years ago, they actually really, it, the majority of them, with some big exceptions, did not like anthropologists because they felt like they're being studied like animals in a zoo. And that felt really awful to them. Although there were some natives that totally collaborated with them. And so the anthropologists could write many books and stuff. But the, the just everyday people, when I was there, they, they didn't want anything to do with anthropologists. In fact, you know, it's kind of an insult when they'd say, are you an anthropologist? <laughs> you know, no, I, I'm not. I'm a school teacher, you know, and and then, OK, then you're OK. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You're kind of like an undercover journalist in a way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, there are so many, you know, interesting things that I've learned through your experiences, one thing that seems to be, you know, really interesting was the communal aspects, you know, even though they were very far in some cases from each other, there was a strong emphasis on sharing in yeah, throughout very this. Strong. Yeah. And, and again, it, it's even though I took a deep dive into their language and culture, I still, there were still things that I still made mistakes and misinterpreted stuff. Like, for example, when, when they would borrow money, I, I, I didn't, I, it took me a while to understand that I was never going to get that back. And at first I thought, oh, wow, that, that doesn't sound right. And I was just putting a white person's judgment on that. And, and, and then it slowly dawned on me, this is how they treat each other. They share they, they're asking me to share, and they do that to each other. So, you know, so I, I I guess I felt, when I realized that, I felt honored that they were just treating me like they treat each other. In other words, what you have, you share with me. And what I have, I share with you. 
Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and yeah. So, and, and so if you win the lottery, you're going to share it with all your friends and stuff. That's what they expect. Right. They're not like us. You know, look at me. I'm the wealthiest man. That, that, in that era that I lived there, that was abhorrent to stick out like that. Mm. Well, and it, I think that it, you even said that, like, the kids seem to be superstitious about being successful because that would make you a target for witchcraft yeah. if you had too much right. to, to give to someone or right. too much for yourself. Right. That's a way to sort of keep the culture to... The balancing uh, mechanism. Yeah, the witchcraft is, is the, its way to achieve certain things to keep your tribe together. Right. Well, and sense? Yeah, and... and can you tell us more about the the role of the roadman in the community? Because you know this idea of a shaman has been so you know commercialized with the music festivals now and the hyper you know psychotropic yeah. culture. It's like you know this idea of shaman has been diluted and diluted and diluted. Okay, roadmen are really different from medicine men. Okay, so roadmen are run peyote ceremonies, which is not their native culture for Navajos. This is borrowed. Medicine man, that is Navajo culture. And so when I was there, the medicine man were the ones who got deeply involved in the cult, in their people. And, and the road men were just strictly doing peyote ceremonies and that's it. So it was a more limited role than a medicine man. Medicine men were very involved in all aspects of their culture. Does that make sense? Right. And and a medicine man wouldn't necessarily be limited to using just plants, right? I think that's another misconception that people have is like, oh, this healing is all done with like potions and mixtures of plants and eat this and you'll feel it's not quite like that, is it? Well, how, how it was when I was there is plants were important, but what was even more important were the ceremonies for healing. The, the whole community gets together. I mean, it's powerful. A whole community gets together for you mm. because you have some disease. Can you imagine what that does to you? You have a whole community singing and dancing for you right. to get well. Right. That's huge. Yeah, there was a ceremony you took part in with the with the baby right there was a child yeah. there was an infant in the community that wasn't doing so well health-wise yeah. and you all came together and something really interesting that occurred during this was was that you spontaneously seemed to be more fluent in Navajo than ever before even to like the shock of the the people afterwards you who took part they're like how come you stopped talking as fluently what happened I know so what happened is I, I could speak, I've been there about a month or so, so I, I could speak very simple things. How many sheep do you have? How old is your grandmother? Where do you live? Stuff like that to have very, like a two-year-old conversation, and that's about it. And, and, and so keep that in mind for what I'm going to say. So there was this Navajo family that wanted to, quote, adopt me. And, and so... Their son took a liking to me. He had go he had gotten a scholarship to study, go to college off the reservation. And when he graduated, he said he was so homesick. He just wanted to come back to the reservation. And, and I met him at the only restaurant in town. 
And I, I let him know I wasn't looking for a boyfriend, but he said, that's okay, but I want, to meet, I want you to meet my family. And so we went to Black Mountain and met family, and they just wanted me to be part of their family. No strings attached at all, at all. It wasn't like they're trying to push me together with their son, nothing like that. And so they can confess that they were part of the Native American church. People keep it kind of quiet because they they it's legal for them, but it's not legal at that era for white people to do that. And they just wanted to keep a low profile. And so they said, would you like to, we'd like to invite you to a ceremony for a sick baby. And so I said, okay. And they said, but the, the, Mother, I'm supposed to call her Shema, because again, that shows affection. You call each other by relational terms, like I call you my son or my grandson or something. Or to make you laugh, I call you my grandfather, because they they have a different sense of humor. You know, I got to like it. At first, I didn't understand it. But I yeah. came to adore it eventually. But anyway. Well, and, so- and Tara and I, I, you know, we have a friend who's from Winslow, Arizona. I've talked about him a bunch on my show before because he sort of came into my life in an interesting time. I don't want to butt in on your story, but I'll just say real briefly, my friend Amos is from Winslow, Arizona. I don't know how close that is to where you were. But, I'm um, north of there. Okay, so he, but he's he's got a similar sense of humor, like a little yeah. bit of an inverted one. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I, I get attached to it. At first, I I didn't think it was funny at all. I and well, part I didn't get it, and I, but eventually I just got hooked on it. I thought it was really funny. It's almost like British humor, where it's dry. You know, it, it it's so funny to me now, but but, it, but yeah. I had to get used to it. Yeah. You know, I didn't think it was funny at all in the beginning. So anyway, so so Shema, Shem means my, ma is a universal word for mother. Shema, she said that I couldn't wear white man's clothes in there. It, it, it wasn't allowed. I had to dress like a traditional Navajo. So, wow, I, ooh, I had this gorgeous velvet <laughs> shirt and satin skirt and then the woven belt and, and then the concha belt silver and I was covered with turquoise and silver and I had my hair up in that traditional Navajo knot with all the yarn coming down I looked into their broken mirror and I wow I looked like I was going to a Navajo prom I I couldn't believe the way I looked and so and so so we sat in a circle and Shima sat next to me, and we sat on Pendleton blankets. That's traditional. And the roadman was sitting to my left, looking this way to the east. And it was all very ritualized. Everything had a meaning and a way to do it. And so the peyote comes around in three different forms, the button, the powder, and the tea. And it tasted awful to me. I had to try really hard not to throw up because my... Shimas told me that that when you throw up, it's the evil coming out of you. And I didn't want anyone to know I was evil. So I I tried to keep it from throwing up. I had the same experience. So so anyway, anyway, so, and then uh, they, part of the ritual is they, they have gathered 
the road man gathered sacred plants from the San Francisco peaks, which is now a ski area, unfortunately, and they rolled them and they use them only for prayer. And so the idea is you inhale, exhale, and then you say a prayer and then you hand it. So it goes around the circle. So when it came to Shema, she did it. And then she handed it to me and said in English, in a loud whisper, just pass it on. And so I didn't pass it on. <laughs> I I guess I was already very affected by the they call it the medicine. I was they don't say peyote, they call it the medicine. I guess I was affected. So I went and I started praying in Navajo. And there's two conversations going on in my head. One said, Oh, oh my God, you're 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 praying in Navajo. That's impossible. You you must be really stoned on this peyote. And the other voice said, This is really happening. This is more real than real. No, it can't. You're stoned. This is you're imagining this. This isn't happening. So then I finish the prayer and pass it on. And then the next thing is the water drum, where it's a, a metal container with water in it with a deer hide stretched over. So it gives the most ethereal, mystical sound. And so they take it and drum, and then they chant and sing. And so the same thing. Shima did that, and then she said, just pass it on. <laughs> and I didn't pass it on. And I started going, hey, nay, young, yo, way, hey, yo, way, hey. And I, I had the same voice. Man, you are really stoned. No, I'm not. This is really happening. No, it can't. You've never heard these songs before. This isn't real. And so I passed it on. <laughs> wow. And then since the other weird things happened before the end of the evening uh, or the yeah, the night, I actually had a real hallucination on my hand. I, uh, my real hallucination was that I had a wedding band on. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm married. But I don't even know who I'm married to. And that was just a thought. I never said anything. And everybody burst out laughing. I, and they were all looking at me. And I was so shocked. And then I thought, and it was just a thought. I never said a word. I thought, no one is ever going to believe this. And the medicine man said out loud, no, they won't believe it. You don't need to talk about it. I, I, I was so blown away. I didn't know what was real, what was happening. And so by eventually the peyote wore off and we circled out and touched the ground with our forehead and blessed ourselves with the eagle feather fan. And then we walked into the cinder block house nearby where some of the women had been up making this huge breakfast. We sat on the ground and there's on, on a, there's a big sheet spread out and there was mutton stew and fry bread and canned peaches. And there's, I don't know how many people, 30, 25 people or something around. And the road man was at the end of the sheet there. And he started looking at me right into my face and started talking nonstop in Navajo. And 
I felt really awkward. Like, why, why is he doing that? Why is he looking at me and talking in Navajo? And, and everybody else was looking at me. And finally, I said, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I, I don't really know what you're saying. I, I don't speak Navajo. And, you know, well, well, and they all burst out laughing. And he said, you sure talked up a storm last night. I said, you mean uh, it, it was it was real? That really happened? He said, you betcha. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you explain? My mind was so blown. <laughs> yeah, what, no. What would you have done, Mark, if that was you? What would you have thought to yourself? I would have kicked myself thinking I was, you know, fool. I was fooling myself, you know, that same thought of like, oh, you're just making this all up, you know, but wow. I mean, it really, it illustrates to me what I've suspected learning about this is that there's a, a consciousness that we're interacting with, with these plants, you know, and it's unfortunate to hear that those San Francisco peaks have a, a ski, you know, slope on it where there once was this you know, plant that they would go and harvest. But yeah, it's now more than ever that we need to gather in ceremony, you know, and connect with our, our Gaia, you know, our Gaia consciousness. I mean, you know, to hear the aspects of the story, it feels like, you know, all of the cultural, whatever was going on in your consciousness was almost set aside because of the set and setting, the ceremony, the drum, the feathers, the yeah. dirt floor, you know, it's, yeah. it, it just speaks and, to how, how we play these roles and they're a lot less fixed than we think. So let me run something by you. Cause uh, some, this guy was actually a physicist, believe it or not, but a very free thinking one. What I'm about to tell you, he was very free thinking physicist, but, but he had had classical education so here's what he said when he read the book and he was trying to interpret that for me. He said, he, he said, I think what happened to Erica is that there's this sea of consciousness out there and everything is out there, but we don't have access to it because we've been brought up a certain way and these things don't happen in our belief system and stuff, but it's all out there. And what the medicine did and what you said, like the ceremony and the chanting and smoking prayer made me lose all that preconceived idea. So I had access to the Navajo language. Is, is that credible? Oh, wow. I mean, credible. It's it's the most credible I've heard I, that you're, you're speaking to what I've been trying to say for a long time now but yeah absolutely that makes sense it checks out it, it it sounds to me like you know what we have going on as a society is sort of like a dampening of our potential and when we have less of these influences interfering with our growth as spiritual beings we're more in touch we're more in tune and, and these folks are an example of that and i i my conspiracy theorist paranoid side of me wants to say well that's what you know the establishment whoever that is whether it's the church or the government they always want to marginalize the people who are most in touch with that connection yeah. to the earth because yeah. those are the people who can't be controlled those are the people and who that are... kind of thing is not supported at all mm. 
you know, that what they're doing, it, right. they get no support at all. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, unfortunate, but uh, you know, back to the the point of the medicine, I have heard once, you know, I guess it's like a, a prophecy from a certain individual. I don't remember their name that, you know, oh, well, this plant came into existence, you know, because of what the Lakota were going through, because of what the First Nations people across the whole continent and of North and South America were going through, you know, that much anguish psychically brought this new life form, this new plant into being. Yeah. It's the same it's this it's the same point that we're making about this ceremony that there isn't such a boundary between a what is physical and what is just an idea, what is just a thought. Well, Mark, I have a question for you. It's off topic, That's meaning fine. it's not about me. I'm asking about you. Is for a twenty eight year old, you you have you have a lot of awareness. And I'm wondering if you went through any kind of thing like suffering or psychedelic experience or just a lot of or that you come by this naturally. How do you have so much awareness at age 28? Well, thank you. I appreciate you wanting to know that. Jeez, we could spend a whole podcast talking about it. I would say to sum it up, you know, my whole life I'd been interested in nature and the natural world. And as I grew older, society was pulling me in the direction that was opposite of that, of what felt right and natural to me. So as I got older and older, I, I realized something was not quite what it should be. And, you know, not to be totally cliche, but when I smoked cannabis, all of that cultural programming really just like melted away, gave me an opportunity to start learning for myself, this was around age 17, 18, I started educating myself. And, and at the same time, I was doing martial arts. So there was a sort of psychosomatic connection there as well. Yeah, thank you. I well, appreciate good for, it. Good, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> good you. for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there, my life hasn't been easy, that's for sure. So if trauma helps an individual become it, smarter, it, I think I, that would it, be a case for it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's I tell my patients who are suffering terribly from, I attract a lot of patients who are really having a bad time. And I tell them, I say, you never waste a bad experience. You, you have to use this horrible thing that's happening to you and take notes or write a book or, or use it in service to others because often these horrible experiences can be a portal to something huge. All my bad experiences in life have helped me be a, they've been a gateway to something much, much better. Right. Right. And, you know, to go back to what Tara said earlier at the beginning of our conversation, how she felt resonance with your experience, because she had that evil, so to speak, coming out of her through the, you know, the yeah. interaction with the medicine. And hold on a sec. Let the engines go by. <laughs> we got a busy road next to us. Go ahead, Tara. Well, I had, I, yeah, I had, I had that experience and I was, I remember sitting there and, and it got passed to me and I, I let it go by a few times and and then I remember hearing fairies laughing and during the experience and but feeling s 
or and feeling sick and not wanting the same thing with the embarrassment and not wanting people to see me throw up and oh no yeah I don't have any evil in me kind of thing (laughs) and and then immediately after the ceremony I went outside and puked everywhere in the bushes and 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 you know after that like and that was on Kauai with the Native American church also it was with I didn't I didn't really know anyone there either but yeah I didn't I didn't know I remember having that that split thinking too or like one side of my mind is like is this happening I don't want anyone to see me doing this but then the other has wow like yeah like there's fairies here and there's spirits in the smoke and I don't think well I I don't know after I I haven't really how did you when you when you left the ceremony or did you how did you integrate it back in into your life oh okay so i i i tried so hard to figure out what happened <laughs> and i was looking for something western to explain it and it took me a long time to realize that that's not going to help me it's it's from my science background that that's not helping me figure out what happened and but so so i i just didn't talk about it with anybody because i didn't even know how to explain it in a way that they would even believe me so i i just kept it quiet and for years i look i was looking for some way to explain it and that scientist put it to rest when he told me that i had access to all all knowledge is out there all everything's out there we just don't have access to it then then i could stop trying to figure it out does that answer your question tara sort of yeah no absolutely and then so so then you went to teach you continued on living your life i continued living my life yeah and, and and all the students they they all tell each other even though they live far apart from each other somehow news gets around it turned out everybody all those children in my class knew i went to the native american church and then they quietly come up to me by now they were speaking really good english and by the way i want to tell you something astounding that happened about that but they'd come up and tell me my family belongs to the Native American church. They kind of say it conspiratorially, like, you know, and I think it's because they knew that the white government was against that, against the peyote. So, so, so they, they realized you were cool and, and had to yeah. let you in uh, that they were cool too. <laughs> yeah. So I want to tell you something that is so mind-blowing. It'll tell you the power of love. I, I Again, every time I say that, it sounds corny, but I, I mean it in the true sense of the word, the power of love. I don't mean it like a cliche or corny or anything. So <clears throat> here's what's so amazing. I told you that in the first year when I was there, these, most of the kids didn't speak English. 
I, I mean, they can say yes or no or stuff like that. Maybe a sentence. Of, but, okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. They learned so fast because they wanted me to know about their lives. So they, it turns out that the white teachers were so wrong about their intelligence. They were so smart and so lovable that it's really sad that they were judged that way because that's not how they are at all. And so, so at the end of the year, this was only like that eight months or something, the school year, something like that. At the end of the school year, I entered three students into a regional speech contest and they all won all three of them. Wow. So you see, you see what it, how, when you portray something, you convey something and it's in the spirit of really caring about the other person, how it's like magic. It's so transformative. Right. Those kids, I mean, they learned English like a house on fire. These kids were really bright. And they really wanted me to understand them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Does that touch your heart? I mean, absolutely. Isn't that yeah. Incredible. You know, it makes me power of just better. witnessing a a person or a child for as they are. Yeah. And nurturing that like a seed. Exactly. And you know, if you think they're stupid, they're they're gonna act like that. Right. I, I never had any judgment about them, be, about their intelligence, and it dawned on me these kids are incredibly smart. Right. Incredibly smart. Yeah, and and you know it is absolutely inspiring. It's a rare you know rare case. I mean, we've had a, a past guest on the show multiple times. He's a, a Ojibwe from Canada. He has a very popular podcast. He's the host of the the Gray America Show along with another gentleman named Graham. And uh, he wrote a book recently, about a year ago, we interviewed him about it, called The Canadian Shame. And it's all about how they threw all these kids across Canada into boarding schools. And, it makes me sick. You know, I, I would imagine that not many of those teachers were like you at all. And that's, yeah, very wow. sad. And, and I hope that's there were sad. some teachers like you there. I'm sure, you know, humanity has its way of, you know, the, yeah. the rose grows in the pavement type of right, thing. Right. But, you know, we, we do have... Yeah, a really bleak situation here in, in New England. I mean, 400 years of, of colonialism plus, you know, there's really little trace of, of what what was the Native American culture here. I mean, we have the we have the Mohegan Sun Casino and the Foxwoods Casino, and, and that's just it for our state. I mean, that's all there is for... There's a few that's little true. museums here and there, but, you know, that's, that's the impression people are left with is, is casinos. Yeah. yeah, it's different out here. It's it's very everything's very visible out here in the Southwest. I mean, the native people are very visible. Mm. So that's nice. Right. Well, and and you know, I sort of feel like I didn't answer your question fully, but you know, to bring Amos up again, one thing that he taught me that always stuck with me and w was really powerful was this synchronicity and this is why i love this animal encounter you had whether metaphysical or not you know it's it's incredibly powerful and tara and i 
we keep track of these little synchronicities. A, a, a month ago, we had a bobcat cross our path, and we live in you know a very suburban area. So to have a bobcat that cross a the blessing. road, right? A, you've been blessed. <laughs> you've been blessed. Thank you. That is a big blessing. Well, yeah. we we have the the perception and the awareness of it. I mean, most people just drive so unaware of the world around them. You know, when Tara and I drive. We're looking for the birds. I mean, last year we we rescued a a blue heron, a great blue heron that had damaged its leg on the side of the road. And, you know, just being in that presence of the moment and driving and seeing what happened, we were able to stop and and rescue it and bring it to a place where it was rehabilitated. But but to, to go back to Amos, the first time that I had ever really, I guess, connected with spirit in a way that was confirmed to me in another person was with Amos and you know he had taught me many things you know at that age I was worried about finding a girlfriend I hadn't met Tara yet and he told me you know well we'll take sage and pray with it and pray because sage is a feminine plan it'll you know bring you a woman you know and it worked it it definitely worked and I was shocked Uh, so I trusted Amos and and another interesting thing that happened was I was meditating in my backyard and where I'd lived at the time in Connecticut, we had a little forest in the backyard. It's sort of rare for that neighborhood. And in the back there around the trees, there's a clearing and I'm sitting there meditating in the sun. And I have what I can only describe as a whiteout. It wasn't a blackout. It was white. Like my whole inside with my eyes closed was like bright white. And I sort of fainted, and it came out of it. When it came out of it, I saw a red-tailed hawk feather. Actually, wow! Right here. This wow. is I've had that, it. That's good medicine. Oh I've, my god! I've that had is it. Good medicine. I've had you. it ever since. Right, and I showed it to Amos. I said, "Amos, look what I found." I was meditating. He said, "Brother, I said a prayer. I said a prayer for you." He said, "I asked." the creator, if you are a true human being or not, because I've, I've taught you a few things and I want to teach you more. And he said, you found that red-tailed hawk sign only a few days after I said that prayer. He's like, this, this is a sign. So, you know, Amos then began to teach me more things. And, you know, he, he always taught me to trust my intuition, you know, and, and ever since I've, you know, had many different jobs and they've led me right here to where I'm standing right now. So I think there's there's certainly a, a higher order, something guiding me, whether it's my higher self or my connection to, to nature, beautiful. you know. That's and, beautiful. So you're reaching a lot of people now. Well, How and, many people do you reach? Yeah, the show's doing really well. You know, and I got to say, when Tara came into my life, it was like a, a conduit because she, she's like tapped into the, the natural world more than I am with my sort of logical you know, biases, you know, she's very fluid and, and flows. So ever since, you know, we've spent time sort of traveling around and going on little journeys, those types of experiences have accelerated, you yeah. know. And so, yeah, the show's doing well. We're reaching a lot of people. It's grow, It grows every day. What, what kind of people do you reach? I mean, I know you probably all sorts of people, oh, but yeah. is there sort of a general? A demographic? Uh, yeah, demographic. Yeah, I would I would say I have surprisingly more female listeners than I expected initially. That so that's awesome. We have sort of a balanced group of people and it's all ages. I mean, I've had 
audience members reach out from you know all over the world even and and yeah all different ages so it's hard to put a pin on it you know i could like go on my computer and find the analytics that's a compliment to you the fact that it your show appeals to such a wide range Mm. that's that's really says something about you well thank you yeah i you know I put a lot of thought into it, but I couldn't do it without brilliant folks like yourself. You know, the show is based on on the guest. Every episode's about a different guest, so I, I couldn't do it without brilliant folks like you, Doctor Erica. <laughs> how, how did you find me? So this is this is the synchronicity that I tried to tell you at the beginning, which was the podcast that covered your book was called Mysterious Universe, and they sort oh, yeah. of. They just, you know, read books and and make light of them. And, you know, I agree, disagree with them sometimes. But either way, that was like a seed planted. And then Ashley with Inner Traditions. No, I think it was Richard Grossinger. Are you familiar with Richard? Yes. It was either Richard or Ashley that put me in touch with you. Richard's been on the show oh. before, and I've oh, I've worked with Ashley a couple times now to book guests like yourself. So it was synchronistic because as I was reading the book, I'm like, where have I heard this stuff before? I'm like, you know, like when you hear a story and you start to visualize it. Yeah. As yeah. I was reading your book, like those memories of me hearing your story f- through that podcast started to pop in so i'm like oh okay this is going to be really great and then we had john with sam and tara listened to your conversation with sam and she said it was good so yeah it's just you know that's the thing that's the thing about the the podcast it's synchronistic it really is like what i was saying about when tara and i started going on journeys like one gentleman who i've interviewed who you might be familiar with who if not i i'd like you to to introduce you to to him his name is peter shampoo and i don't know so he wrote a book called the gaia matrix and and a lot of it has to do with the interconnection between all of these sacred sites around the globe and how you can see the landscape fractal in these different patterns and and how these sacred sites correspond with them and one of his goals right now he's out in arizona is to help water the west by you know actually getting in touch with these ancient sites and doing proper ceremonies there. He recently helped repatriate some of the desecrated remains from Wounded Knee. So, you know, he's, he's been an inspiration for us and we synchronistically, you know, book by book by book in this sort of like funny way, we're introduced to him. So like, you know, we go to Woodstock after a guest tells us that Woodstock, New York is this great vortex area of energy. So we took a little drive there and we find a book about New England stone structures and this Hammonasset line that has all these indigenous stone structures going from Long Island all the way through the Great Lakes. And, you know, this fascinated us being here in New England. Like I said earlier, the the historical information about Native Americans and their imprint here has been a little bit, you know, it's it's here, but it's it's been biased, you know, the wrong records and things like right. that. So it's it's a little mysterious, you know, what these stone structures are really all about. And one thing led to another. We find this guy, Peter Shampoo from Massachusetts, who knows all about the stone structures. And he's been on the show twice now. I, I look forward to having him on again in in the future but but yeah it does feel like there's there's something going on with the topics that come up 
of interest that are outside of our direct influence. Not that something else is controlling it, but it's it's synchronistic. You know, it's it's all meant to be. It feels. That's cool. Very cool. Well, you're doing a good public service. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I. I really, I should give Sam a lot of credit too, because he and I met and I gave him this spiritual book right around the time that he was, uh, he had his daughters, right? He had two little uh, twin girls and started to have some changes in his life. And then he created this spiritual podcast, which you were a guest on. And after being a guest on his show, he asked me to start working for him and booking guests like yourself for him. So that helped me sort of get into this podcast world. But it, it's a whole long story that I'm sure my listeners have heard a few times already. But yeah, Erica, I I wonder, you know, is there any any words of, of wisdom you want to share with our audience now that you're you're here with us? I mean we're in a sort of a an interesting time on earth and, and I know you have you've learned a lot from your experiences. I've learned a lot. Yeah, I've learned a lot, and I, I okay. The message I have to my, your listeners is, it's really important to trust your inner wisdom, and sometimes that voice is so little, you have to be or so soft, you have to be very still, to so you can hear that little voice, and little voice doesn't have to be a real voice. It can be just a strong feeling that you need to spend some time quiet and best of all in nature, but some, some really still time to find out what that little voice or that little intuition is. And it's really important that, that you follow the intuition because when people don't, when they're so override it or stay so busy they can't even hear it you can really get off the path or if you do hear the voice you don't trust it and you go with the common narrative you can end up getting sick and or having a bad accident or something like that and so i i just want to give people encourage people to have confidence in their intuition because we know things that our mind, our logical mind, doesn't know at all. Like, for example, my little voice said to go on the Navajo, go accept that teaching job. My logical mind said, are you crazy? <laughs> Why would you want to do a thing like that? And thank God that I listened to that little voice. And when Everybody encouraged me not to do it and kept asking me, why, why do you want to do something like that? And, and I was honest. I said, I don't know. I, I don't know, but I just have a feeling this is what I need to do. Then when I got there, I thought I'd made a gigantic mistake and I never should have listened to that little voice and I should have listened to my logic. And then it turned out, no, that little voice was terribly important and knew ultimately what was in my best interest more than my logical mind. Because intuition, I think it's a way we have access to stuff that we can't access by logic. 
And so it's a real gift. And we, I think it's important we listen to it. Does that make sense, Mark? Absolutely, yeah. No, that that's well-received here. And I think more often than, than not, we're so caught up in our future or our past that we lose sight of the present where our intuition is most important. You know, it, yep. usually in cases of extremity that we hear about people's intuition saving them, you know, yep. not not necessarily like the mundane decisions that are sometimes more life threatening to, to get wrong than than, you yep. know, something more extreme. So, yeah, intuition is extremely important. That's why we try to remind people with this show is to remember that you're in the now. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is something I say on every episode, you know, and enjoy yourself wherever you are in the now or immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now, because there is no time. There's just this present moment. And and I think that's where we can connect with ourselves and, and the the source and, and everything around us. That's so true. That's so true. Well, Dr. Tara, do you want to say anything? Every day is a ceremony. That's beautiful. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't um, think of a, a, a better conversation to have with someone like yourself, Dr. Erica Elliott. There's so much more in your book, and I know people are going to want to pick it up, so we'll have the link to that in the description. But can you tell us where folks can find it, or, or maybe you have a website people can go to to yeah. get in touch with you? Okay, my medical website is not active, but you can go visit to see, uh, read a little bit about me. It, that inactive website is ericaelliotmd.com, and Elliot is two L's and two T's. And then I have a blog site, which your, your listeners might really love. It's called Musings, Memoir, and Medicine, and... And that's not where you can get the book. I'm just, uh, I'll get there in a minute. But that is a collection of excerpts from the three memoirs I'm working on. And it's also, there's medical posts that are really useful. There are things that you can't find in mainstream medicine. It's, yeah, it's a different approach to getting well. And so a lot of people around the world go and click under the category medicine and look at all those blog posts and find really useful information that's very practical. And I tell, I sort of show how I solve these problems and how, how I have become known as a health detective and, and so forth. Now, where to get the book is on Amazon. Awesome. And I, I need to tell you something. I first self-published, and it did really well. First, it was just word of mouth. It just took off. And so Inner Traditions said they wanted to republish it. So I said, okay, so you'll see two different covers. The republished one, which is updated and has more about COVID in the last chapters, that has an eagle on the cover. Mm. And so that's the one to buy mm. is the updated one, the second version. Right. I believe that's the one we read. And uh, yeah, I, I noticed in the end there, there was a, a mention of COVID. And I think the little thing that stuck with me was you asked, I think, a medicine man or some healer, someone who is Navajo, you know, what's COVID? Is this, you know, what's going on with this? And 
very simple, just COVID is COVID, right? It was just sort of like, it felt like it, you were expecting more from that. But yeah, it's, there's some interesting stuff on that that people can can go and check out. And I would love to have you back on to talk about your work as a health detective. I think that would oh, be sure. definitely interesting for our our episodes here. We, we have talked to a couple interesting doctors in the past almost two years now. October 5th will be our two-year anniversary for this show. And I got to say, you have taken the spot as my favorite doctor on the show so far. So thank you, oh, <laughs> Dr. Eric, Eric really Elliot. Nice. I'm going to call my son and tell him, hey, this millennial I met, he, he said I'm his favorite doctor. <laughs> my son my son gets a kick out of it, all this stuff. Oh, yeah? His well, mom's, His mom's getting all this attention. He thinks it's <laughs> He thinks it's hilarious. Well, you're you're on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy show. Does your son think you're crazy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, he'll be pleased. Awesome. Well, I hope he listens. I hope he tunes in. Maybe he'll find some of our episodes interesting. We talk about far more than just the stuff we've covered here. And I'm glad to hear you checked out our, our show. And yeah. thank you for coming along for this little journey. I mean, and, and sharing so much with us. I, I really I'm feel... sure. It's a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you. Thank Mark you. and Tara. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, until next time... Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Everyone listening, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right. And here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. What a great interview with Dr. Erica Elliott. Thank you for tuning in. Sorry, this one came in a little late today on Monday. I uh, spent a lot of time researching for my latest appearance on tinfoil hat which will be out tomorrow so if you're listening to this tomorrow tuesday october 11th not only is it my birthday i'll be 28 years old but also uh an episode of tinfoil hat with yours truly will be out so look at that and it's indigenous people's day so of course this episode had to do with some of uh, the interesting aspects of the Navajo culture, at least the ones that Erica Elliott interacted with. And it was a tremendous learning experience. This conversation took place a couple weeks ago, but it stuck with me. And uh, yeah, it means a lot to me to have an audience who cares about these issues as well. So thank you everybody for tuning in not going to spend a lot of time plugging anything on this episode if you'd like to donate to the show all my links are in the description please feel free to send me a birthday gift uh i would really appreciate it and it will go towards funding the show (laughs) thank you so much and also patreon rockfin great places to support the show there's a myriad of other ways to support the show just go to www.myfamilythinksomecrazy.com Support Dr. Erica Elliott. Get her book, Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert. And enjoy your week. We're going to be putting out two more episodes this week. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. Everybody listening, love you all. And have a happy birthday tomorrow. Today's my last day as a 27-year-old man. So, looking forward to that. And uh, onward to the next one. Hope you're doing great wherever you are in your now.
So um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows. You know, Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes. He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me, Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's. It's a beautiful day to be alive. Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you? 